This is a re-recording of Sermon from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes the last couple weeks. It's our summer series. And, um, and so I want to title this sermon, False Transcendency. And the big idea is that discontent pasture is a terror to Christ's church. Uh, that's kind of the big idea that, that I kind of want to discuss and talk about from this chapter of God's Word. The main idea from the sermon from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, a pastor of Christ's church should not oppress those in his church, envy his fellow neighbor pastor, be restless, discontent, lonely, and constantly seek relevance and control in the church. Again, the big idea is a discontent pastor is a terror to Christ's church. Church. And I want to introduce this sermon uh, and, and talk about what is a pastor. I think that is a, is a question that seems kind of an obvious uh, uh, question to, to be able to answer. But I think, uh, I think the church, especially in America, we're struggling to answer what is a pastor. And, and a book that I've been able to read recently is a book by Eugene Peterson called The Pastor. And it's a memoir kind of how he got into the ministry, how he became a pastor. Uh, a few different times in the book, he, he asked this question, wrestled with this question of what is a pastor? And, and one way that he discusses this is he brings up a story from his past of a, of a friend, a fellow pastor that was a part of a, um, a fellowship of pastors that met regularly during the week. And this particular pastor named Philip got a job at a church that was bigger and was going to pay him more money. And this is a letter that Eugene Peterson wrote to this pastor named Philip. He says, Sir Philip, I've been thinking about our conversation last week and want to respond to what you anticipate in your new congregation. You mentioned its prominence in a town center, a kind of cathedral church that would be able to provide influence for the Christian message far beyond its walls. Did I hear you right? I certainly understand the appeal and feel it myself frequently, but I'm also suspicious of the appeal and believe that gratifying it is destructive, both to the gospel and the pastoral vocation. It is the kind of thing Americans specialize in, and one of the consequences is that American religion and the pastoral vocation are in a shabby state. It's also the kind of thing by which we've, uh, we have abundant documentation through 20 centuries now of de debilitating both congregation and pastor. In general terms, it's the devil's temptation to Jesus to throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple. Every time the church's leaders depersonalize, even a little, the worshiping, loving community, the gospel is weakened. And size is the great depersonalizer. Kierkegaard, who's a philosopher, a Danish philosopher, criticism is so cogent. The more people, the less truth. The only way the Christian life is brought to maturity is through intimacy, renunciation, and personal deepening. And the pastor is in a key position to nurture such maturity. It is true that these things can take place in the context of a large congregations, but only by seniors going against the grain. Largeness is impediment, not a help. Classically, there are three ways in which humans try to find transcendence. Religious meaning, God meaning, apart from God as revealed in the cross of Jesus, through the ecstasy of alcohol and drugs, through the ecstasy of recreational sex, through the ecstasy of crowds. Church leaders frequently warn against the drugs and the sex, but at least in America, almost never against the crowds. 
Probably because they get so much ego benefit from the crowds. But a crowd destroys the spirit as thoroughly as excessive drink and depersonalized sex. It takes us out of ourselves, but not to God, only away from Him. The religious hunger is rooted in the unsatisfactory nature of the self. We hunger to escape the dullness, the boredom, the tiresomeness of me. We can escape upward or downward. Drugs and depersonalized sex are a false transcendency downward. A crowd is an exercise in false transcendency upward, which is why all crowds are spiritually pretty much the same. Whether at football games, political rallies, or church, so why are we pastors so unsuspicious of crowds, so naive about the false transcendency that they engender? Why are we so knowledgeable in the false transcendency of drug and sex, and so unlearned in the false transcendency of crowds? There are many spiritual masters in our tradition who diagnose and mourn, but they are a little road today, a little red today. I myself have never written what I really feel on the subject, maybe because I'm not entirely sure of myself. There are being so few pastors alive today who agree. Or maybe it's because I don't want to risk wholesale reproduction by friends by whom I genuinely like and respect. But really, I do feel the crowds are a worse danger, far worse than drink or sex. And pastors may be the only people on the planet who are in a position to encourage an imagination that conceives of congregational strategically, not in terms of its size, but as a congenial setting for becoming mature in Christ in a community, not a crowd. Your present congregation is close to ideal in size to employ your pastoral vocation for forming Christian maturity. You talk about multiplying your influence. My apprehension is that your anticipated move will diminish your vocation, not enhance it. Can we talk more about this? Peterson asked his friend Philip. I would welcome a continuing conversation. The peace of Christ, Eugene. What is a pastor? The vocation of pastor has been replaced by the strategies of religious entrepreneurial, the business plans, and kind of continually with pastors in times past is virtually non-existent. We are a generation that feels as if it is having to start out from scratch to figure out a way to represent and nurture this richly nuanced and all-evolving life of Christ in a country that knew not Joseph. This is a quote from Eugene Peterson. People in general even when they don't know exactly what a psychiatrist does in detail, assume they know. Pastors have no comparable identity recognition. Virtually nobody knows what we do, nor our congregations, not the community. Very often, not even professors who taught us. Not even, and this is the most unsettling, the bishops and the executives and the superintendents who provide overall direction and counsel to our work. What is a pastor? People who have received God's grace and desire for their life to be shaped by God's word and look to that, do that among a particular people in a particular pace, place. This is what a pastor is. Again, the big idea of the message this morning is a discontent pastor is a terror to Christ's church. I really desire and strive to present a blueprint to the kind of pastors that Redeemer Fellowship Church must pray and appoint. If we cannot define what a pastor is, how are we possibly able to hire a pastor or keep a pastor accountable if we don't even know how to define the term or the role or the column? What is a pastor? Sorry, I'll kind of continue this, this kind of 
trend in these sermons of reading a passage from the New Testament to kind of give us a, a broad understanding of what the preacher from Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us here. Go to 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letters to the Corinthians. Go to chapter 4, 1 Corinthians. Paul here writes, This is how I want you to regard us, as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not therefore acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, but when the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things known in the darkness, and who will disclose, disclose the purpose of the heart? Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn thus not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you do not receive? If then you receive it, why do you boast as if you do not receive it? Paul here is talking about what he is and why there is no difference between him or the ministry of Apollo, the ministry of Peter. That they are all servants of God, not servants of crowds or servants of themselves or for their own glory. But they are servants of God, stewards of the mysteries of God. So, getting into Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we see that the preacher or the, the teacher and, and, and it's, it's, it's talking here. And he and In the last few chapters, he's talked about vanity of wisdom, vanity of wealth vanity of toil. He speaks about God's sovereignty and providence over all things that we, there's a time for everything, time to be born and time to die. And there's nothing we can do to escape God's providence and time. So here, he starts off talking about injustice. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And he sees the world. And he sees all the oppression in the world. And it saddens him. It frustrates him. All the oppression, all the injustice in the world. And so I really want to focus on the issue of the oppression that pastors place upon their sheep upon their church. So point number one is why are you oppressing my sheep, pastor? And I want to tell a story of Pastor James McDonald. And James McDonald at one time was one of the most popular, most successful pastors in the United States, his church in Chicago, Harvest uh, Harvest Baptist Church, was was humongous. It is in many different states, and it had many different uh, campuses across the United States. And James McDonald had a he, had, he wrote books, he had a, a radio ministry, and uh, he had a, many many crowds came to hear him preach and teach. Well, as he as the church grew, and as, as James Pastor McDonald grew in popularity and, and, and stature. In his ministry, he created this culture of fear, and that many, many people that were in his church were oppressed by him, and that he created this this church culture where it was very much his word was king, and his word ruled, and he created a, a church where he ruled the church, and by that, many people were were oppressed and intimidated by him. 
And this oppression is really kind of one of the things that, that the, the preacher, the teacher here in Ecclesiastes 4 is talking about, this oppression. And he says that those who are oppressed have no comfort. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power. On the side of James McDonald was power. And he used that power to oppress the people in his church. No one to comfort them. You would think in the church of all places, there would be comfort. That the pastors of that church would be servants of comfort. But actually, they were not ones who comforted. They were the ones who had power. And they oppressed those in the church. On the side of the oppressors, there was power. They were abusive with their power. Demanding with their power. They were controlling with their power. Bending subjects to their will with their power. We even see this in the book of Exodus in chapter 1 when Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh who forgot about Joseph and forgot about Joseph and the former Pharaoh's promise to Joseph's family. He, he forgot about Joseph and therefore he, he turned and looked at all these people of Israel, these Israelites, these Hebrews, and he oppressed them. We even learn a little later when Moses comes onto the scene and is, is called by God to be a spokesman, to, to be the leader of the Hebrews and lead them out of the, uh, out of the, the, uh, the nation of Egypt, that because of the, his, his demands to free God's people, Pharaoh restricted that the, the people, the Jews, the, the slaves, the, the Hebrews who were slaves, that they could, had to make bricks without straw. He even increased their oppression. Controlling them, abusing them. We even think of nations in our world today that we kind of symbolize as nations that are oppressive, oppressing regimes. Uh, North Korea is one, one example of an oppressive government on its people. We think of the nation of China and its oppression on people, especially when it comes to religion. Another nation that came up just recently is, is Canada. They, there was an article in the newspaper just last week about religious intolerance that's happening in Canada. If you are a government worker, you're, you're not allowed by law to wear any symbol of your religion. If you're a Christian, you couldn't wear a necklace with a cross on it. You couldn't, if you were a Jew, you couldn't wear a yarmulke and, and so on and so on. People are passing these laws that force compliance. And by doing this, they fail to comfort. They use their power to oppress. The preacher continues here, he said, I saw, all, I saw all the toil and all the skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. He says this in verse, verse 4. Is that all the work and all the, the toil that is done, is this, they do it out of a sense of envy of their neighbor, the man's envy of his neighbors. There's an article I read last week about the, is that we live in an age of envy. The, the, the social media age is, a, is created this age of Envy. There's career envy. People are envious of other people's careers. They make more money or they have a more, a more significant career or job. Body envy, especially on Instagram or all these, these models, who amateur models who uh, take pictures of themselves um, since daily of themselves and, and, and they show off their envy and people see this and, and they are envious of their, their weight or they're envious of their, their good looks. Uh, parents can sometimes be envious of, their, of other of other parents' children. 
especially like on Facebook, they see a, a children acting a certain way or succeeding and accomplishing certain things either at school or sports or other activities. And some, some parents have envy. They wish they, their children were like these children. Vacation envy. You know, people have pictures that they post on, on, and on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter about their, about their vacation. And people are envious because they don't have enough money to go to that particular place. They weren't able to go on a vacation this year because of, of budget issues or money issues. Um, and so people have envy of people's vacations. And so because of social media and because of the world that we live in and everyone is just inundated with people's publication of their lives, it creates envy. And envy is a word that means pain at the sight of another person's good fortune. We know of envy from the Bible because reason why Cain killed Abel was out of envy. He, Abel's sacrifice and his offering to God was more acceptable to God, and Cain's was rejected by God, and Cain was envious of his brother Abel. And why was he, what led, what, what was the outcome or the result of his envy? Oppression. He killed his brother. Oppression or envy leads to oppression. A quote from Shakespeare's play, he had a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. Because of another person's existence and because of their better in certain ways, it leads to an envious heart. A clinical psychologist Rachel Andrews says, uh, she quotes it, she says, it's about naming it as an emotion, envy. Knowing how it feels and not interpreting it as a positive or a negative, trying to understand what it's telling you that you want. If that is achievable, you can take proper steps towards achieving it. But at the same time, ask yourself, what would be good enough? It's a great question. Even if we're trying to figure out or trying to solve our envy, how do we define what is good enough? A motivation to overwork is a desire to be seen as accomplished. And we see accomplishment as good enough. There's always going to be someone who accomplishes more. Someone who earns more. Someone who looks better. Someone who has a better job. Someone who goes on better vacations. And it leads to constant envy. The preacher says, all toil and all skill is, is given to work. And, and, and this work, and this toil, is a hunger for notoriety, a hunger for success, a hunger for the congratulation of others, a hunger to prove to others that I am worthy. You even think about 1 Kings chapter 12, when Rehoboam, who is the son of King Solomon, and then when his group of leaders in the nation of Israel came to him and said, hey, would you be easier on us? Because your father oppressed us. And what Rehoboam did was, because his father was seen great, was seen, was, had a great legacy and was this, considered a great king. He decided that he was going to be greater than his father. Out of envy, his envious of his father's accomplishments led to him oppressing these people. Envy leads to oppression. A desire to be seen as better pushes us to believe that the means justify the ends. So some overwork, some push people too hard, some show too much passion, some only do what increases their brand as a result, some fail to comfort. They pass by the beaten man on the road because they are too busy filming their next Facebook live video or posting cool updates on Twitter 
envy leads to oppression. And when pastors are envious of other churches or other pastors, it leads to oppression. We ignore people in our church. We ignore the needs. We ignore opportunities to comfort. We ignore opportunities to minister because our hearts are consumed by envy. All, yet all this envy, work, toil, is vanity. Envy of others gets you nothing. Envy that leads to oppression gets you nothing. What reward, what reward is given by the fruit of your envious toil? Envious to, envious toil? Nothing. It is all vanity. Your envious toil leads to nothing. There's no great reward. Your great, your great acts of oppression on others to achieve some great goal or achieve some great accomplishment is meaningless. We know from Christ's humility that Christ was one who took on the form of a servant, who's humble to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul says this about Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. A passage that every pastor, a passage that every pastor should read every day Pastors are called to be humble to the point of death. Pastors are not called to great fame or great wealth. Pastors are called to servanthood, not to honor. Paul even says that his life is, he, he desires to be with Christ, to live as Christ, and to die as gain. That his entire being, his, all of, every breath that he takes, is all for Christ. Not for himself. Not for his glory. Even Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is a gift of God, so that no, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. We have nothing that we can boast in. Paul had nothing to boast in. All that he boasted was in, is in Christ's salvation in his life. God's grace in his life. A pastor who is motivated out of envy and competition of others and not by the simple love of God's grace in Christ will be a terror in Christ's church. The application of this is that as a church, instead of being envious of our neighbors who have bigger buildings or bigger budgets or a bit more crowds, we should pray for them. Because the tendency in those situations, as Eugene Peterson says, is that crowds lead to an opportunity of dishonesty, an opportunity for oppression, an opportunity of, of missing the gospel altogether. So I want to pray for our neighboring churches. So Lord, we want to pray for Westwood Baptist Church, a church that's very close by to us, a church that we agree with on so many ways. Lord, we pray that you would give them opportunities for ministry. Lord, we pray that you would use them, Lord, to preach the gospel faithfully. We pray for Pastor Dave. We pray for for Ben, we pay for their staff, Lord, we pay for their members and their leaders, Lord. Lord, we pray, Lord, that uh, if there's anything going on in that church, things that they're struggling with or working on, Lord, I pray that you would give them strength and endurance in their ministry, Lord. Lord, we pray for City Church, we pray for One Life and Crossroads, we pray for other Baptist churches in our town. But we pray, Lord, that Redeemer would not be envious of what you're doing there. But, Lord, that we would pray for them, Lord. We pray that you would keep them humble.
pray that you would use them, that they would be faithful to your word. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would help us continue to pray for them. In Jesus' name, amen. The second point is, is that pastors who, who leave unloved is a failure. Pastor who leaves unloved is a failure. And I, I went to the story of, of Mark Driscoll. And Mark Driscoll was a, a, a very similar to James McDonald, a, a, a very popular pastor. I mean, he's written several books uh, that have been very popular on the New York Times bestseller list. In um, Mark Driscoll uh, started Mars Hill uh, Church. And Mars Hill uh, is a church that, that was planted in, in Seattle, Washington, a place that we wouldn't say is kind of the, the Bible belt by any means. And he was able to, to just have a, a very effective ministry up there. And they were able to plant churches all over the West Coast. And he was actually the founder of Acts 29, which is a church planting network. And me and my wife were part of an Acts 29 church in Louisville. And uh, again, like, and actually right now Matt Chandler is the president of that network, and they bring plenty of churches all over the world through that network. And Mark Driscoll was used in such a mighty way by, mighty way by God. But Driscoll, with as Eugene Peterson said, crowds lead to some to major issues, and one of those issues was that similar to David McDonald, that Driscoll created a culture of fear and tried in different ways to be able to fire members and, and just, just really create this culture of fear and oppression. And did one thing where he had the, the church basically buy $200,000 worth of copies of his books so he would be on the first, uh, and he would be on the New York Times bestseller books. Well, just really used the church in a way to glorify himself. And he was, he was, um, he resigned from Mars Hill and there was, there was a lot of uh, discussions about, um, you know, having him stepped down and, and fired, and he, was, he wasn't fired, but he did step down. But you have this sad case uh, of, of, a, of a pastor who, who used his position to glorify himself. And this is really what the preacher is talking about here, the failures of leadership. And, and, and the sad story of it, of it is that there's sad leadership in the church as well. He says here, the, the writer says, the, the preacher says here in verse, verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quick quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Better is rest over constant toil. Better is rest over busyness. That's what the teacher is saying here. The two different choices is, is, is not occupied or fully occupied with our time, he would choose the one of where you're not occupied. Well, there is a sense of rest. You're not constantly toiling and working. And that is an issue in America, the restlessness of America, that we're constantly working and constantly wanting to prove to other people that we are busy and that we are doing something productive with our lives. And even to the point where if we ever ask the question to anyone, how are you doing? Typically the answer is, I'm busy. I've been very busy. And we see that as actually a positive answer. That busyness portrays to the person asking the question that we are not a loser. That we are productive with our day. That we are, our day is full of activities. Our lives are full of toil. But the writer is saying here, the preacher, the teacher is saying that's 
It's striving after wins. That that positive answer of busyness is really an answer of you're striving after wins. That you're basically telling the person, how are you, is that I have spent my week constantly striving after wins. No time for rest. No time for friendship. This is a quote from a book that by, entitled the, the Busy Trap. Business serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, completely booked, and demand every hour of the day. Busyness is this, this sense that we are not empty, that our lives are full of activity, but the actuality is, is that our lives are empty and we're filling it with activity and toil. French social critic uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, who traveled in the United States in the 1830s, was struck by America's restlessness, even in the midst of their prosperity. He was also struck by the cloud that darkened many Americans' faces. The sadness, he believed, was explained by the fact that Americans are constantly thinking about the good things they might be missing. Constantly trying to, to toil and strive for something better, never satisfied. An opportunity for advancement or for praise, and we're constantly seeking these advancements and these praises. Increasing sales numbers, attendance, or quarterly earnings. Fear of irrelevancy or fear of lost opportunities. Our hands are always full. Why are we doing this? Am I serving my own interests or am I serving the people who lack comfort and need Christ's refreshing gospel? Am I doing all this toil and ministry because I want to be glorified or do I really truly care about people? Do I truly care about Christ's refreshing gospel on these people's lives who need comfort? Restlessness is the reward of our toil. Constantly stressed, sleepless nights, worried about events outside our control. And as the writer already said the chapter before, there's a time to be born, a time to die. There's a time for everything under the sun, and there's no reason to constantly try to control every activity or every event because you're not in control. It's simply an activity of vanity. Christ cannot save you so that you can now be stressed all the time with work and toil. He is the one that upholds the universe with his power. You are not the Christ. In this church, in your family, at your work, or amongst your friends, you are not the cross. You, the cross is not, you do not fit the cross. You cannot fit that place. Only Christ Jesus can fit that place. You've been saved by the Christ. He wants you to know the joy that is, in, that is yours in him. A pastor that is overworked and trying to earn prestige and believes himself to be Christ to his churches and, and is unable to rest in the grace of Christ will be a terror question. The writer continues, he says, One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. For whom, for whom are I toiling and depriving myself? Of pleasure. He says here in verse, verse 8, For whom am I doing this for? For whom am I depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and unhappy business. Never satisfied. The reward of all his toil is constantly burning for more. Discontentment is perceived as good. It's American virtue of discontentment. Never being satisfied with what you have. Always strive for more. Always seek more, seek more attendance, seek more baptism, seek more budgets, but it, is it for you or for God? 
A pastor who is never satisfied with God's work in their ministry and church will be a terror in Christ's church. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their twelve. The writer here in verse in verse nine starts to talk about that the the one who has no other, who does this all on their own, this lone wolf mentality, is a fool. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. I think of Sam and Frodo from the Lord of the Rings uh, series and movies, trilogy, that Frodo at one time tried to do this on his own. He, he kind of, he cast off everyone from the fellowship of the ring and, and tried to go out on his own. He's like, this is my mission, my task, this is my responsibility, something I have to accomplish and no one can go with me. No one has the same task that I do. And what does Sam do? He goes after him and says, I'm not going to lose you. I promised Gandalf that I would never lose, leave you. I will never, I won't leave you. Don't lose him, Sam I scan Gandalf says to him. And Sam doesn't mean to. He doesn't want to lose him. He doesn't want to leave him. He wants to help. And what does Frodo say several times in the story? I'm glad you're with me. Because one, without a fellow, without a partner, without a friend to carry on this journey, when he falls, who is there to pick him up? If two lie together, one will keep the other warm. Even Paul talks about his in his own ministry how he he he, he needed Timothy to come and be with him. He needed his cloak and he needed him to come. He needed him to stay with him. He even says, "Remind you know, tell me when you get here. Don't forget to come and be with me." Paul did the support of others in his work. The writer says here, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Strength is represented in companionship and cooperation. The health of a church is not based on their attendance or their budgets or their building side of the road. It's based on the closeness and love of the elders and pastors for each other. Too often the case studies, the famous pastors whose churches crumble is due to an overemphasis of their own talents at the expense of the companionship and accountability that he needed. And because he lacked companionship, because he lacked accountability, the church crumbled. Because a church cannot stand on the talents of one man. The health of a church is dependent on the closeness and love between the pastors and elders of that church. A pastor who doesn't have accountability is a terror to Christ's church. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. So the writer can kind of change his gears here at the end. And, and, and at the end of this passage, starting in verse 13, and he talks about a king. And he even says here in verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. He talks about this, this king who, who started in prison in poverty and then rose to the throne. The next youth, we see this in, in verse 13, 15, I saw all living who move about under the sun, along with that next youth who was to stand in the king's place. So that there's a youth who came out of prison, out of poverty, who rose to the throne, who replaced this old, foolish king, who wouldn't take advice. But then there was another youth that ascended the throne after. So it says we have three kings being represented here. The old, foolish king, this youth that came out of poverty and prison and rose to the throne now, and next and, and this, this youth who, who came from poverty and prison and rose to the throne, he had a great amount of influence, great crowds. There was no end to all the people. He had great fame. He was, he was a great king. 
But it came to an end. Someone else who was younger took his place. The great crowd stopped rejoicing in the old king. His relevance and glory had faded. Someone came to replace him. And that glory and that rejoicing, that praise that was given to him is now given to another. So people's celebration of your work is temporary. Someone else will come along that is younger, funnier, sharper, more creative. There's this fear of irrelevancy, this fear of fading glory. This old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. We don't want to be a foolish king, an old foolish king who won't take advice. We want to be an old wise king who understands that our glory will fade and our influence is temporary. And the, and the application here is prepare the wise youth for leadership. Accept your growing irrelevancy. What did John say? John the Baptist said about Jesus, I must decrease and he must increase. We must accept the role of striving for Christ's glory over our own glory. And that means preparing the next generation for their influence to come. We should strive to encourage and prepare young pastors who will take our position, our relevancy, our influence in Christ is glorified. It's all for Christ. What did Paul say? Because of his prison, he says, I'm in prison, but it's all for Christ. Glory. What happens to me is for Christ's glory. It's all for Christ's glory. So our irrelevancy, our fading glory that will come in our old age is for Christ's glory. A pastor who worries about his fading glory and threatened by the emergency of younger leaders is a terror to Christian. I want to end this sermon giving Redeemer Fellowship a blueprint, a model for who to look for in a pastor. Because the issue is, and this is an issue with church plants and young churches, that they're so dependent on the founding pastors or pastors that when that pastor or pastors were happened to leave, or something to happen to them, either they die or they fall into sin, what to do? And if you as a church do not know who to look for to be your pastors, what the Bible says that pastors should be, you will not know what pastors to appoint. And that will be to the detriment of this church. You are Christ. You are not the pastors. You belong to Christ. And Christ has gifted his churches with pastors and shepherds. So what is a pastor? A pastor is a witness. And Eugene Peterson said, a witness, I think, is the right word. A witness is never the center, but only the person who points to ordained what is going on at the center. In this case, the action and revelation of God and all the operations of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A pastor is a witness to trust and put your faith in Christ Jesus, not in the pastor. What role does the pastor have here? What should always be the pastor's role? Peterson says, not men and women defined by what we could do for them, but by what God was already doing for and in them. To remind them of what God is doing in them and will do in them. That is the role of a pastor. A pastor is what is a servant of Christ, number one. So looking for people that are servants of Christ Jesus. Not servants of their own glory, but servants of Christ. 
stewards of God's mystery, that are faithful preachers and teachers of the word, that, that are stewards of the mysteries. They're not creators of the mysteries. They're not uh, ones who write their own mysteries or create their own uh, ideas and examples of what that is, but one who is a steward of God's mysteries, who preaches the Bible faithfully. They're fools for Christ's sake. They will stand on the authority of Christ, that they're not ashamed of the gospel, will preach the gospel, even when people say you're a fool for preaching. They're a fool for Christ's sake. They will be perceived as foolish because they preach Christ. One who boasts in his weaknesses, not in his strength. Someone who is humble. Someone who recognizes that they don't have all the talent, but they need other people. They need others' accountability. Number five, fellow worker for Christ by God's grace. They're a fellow worker. They're ones who are not better than the laity. They're not better than the members of the church. They're not higher on the ladder or the pyramid. But they're fellow workers with Christ. And they're encouraging and teaching the church and equipping the church so that they can do ministry alongside the pastors. One who is content in grace. Not discontent. Not seeking to be famous or to, be, to, to create, increase his brand. To increase the crowd who's content in grace. All he needs is Christ Jesus alone. Number seven, united with others in Christ's work. Kind of going along with fellow worker by, for Christ by God's grace. That God's grace is the one who makes him a worker, not his talents, not his desires. But also one who's united with others in Christ's work. He's a member of the team. and seeks to use his giftings and his talents and his strengths to help the team. Number eight is dedicated to preparing the next generation of pastors. Like Paul, who, who desired to prepare Timothy. What does he tell Timothy to do in Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through? To find teachable and faithful and available men to pass on the truth of the gospel. To raise up the next generation. This was Paul's desire. Because he knew he was going to live forever. He had to pass on the legacy and pass on this, and the teachings of God's word to Timothy and, and encourage and equip him to be a faithful pastor and a faithful preacher of God's word. And Timothy's role was to pass that on to others. It's not my role here to take up all the glory and all the fame, but to prepare and equip you to be teachers of the word, to be ministers of the word, to raise up Ditton and Robert and other men to be fellow pastors with me. That is my job. That is my role. Not to be fearful of irrelevancy or fearful of fading glory. That other people, other men in this church may preach better than me, or teach better than me, or administrate better than me, and evangelize better than me. But you be encouraged by that. Be glorify God for that. For Christ's sake. You pray. Then Lord, we are so thankful for this encouragement, this challenge here in Ecclesiastes chapter. Lord, that you would give us wisdom to appoint leaders, pastors in this church, ones who are not oppressors, but one who comforts those in need. One who is not discontent, but satisfied in Christ alone. Someone who's not striving out of envy, 
but striving out of just a desire to please you. One who is encouraged and seeks companionship and friendship and accountability with others. One who is, is encouraged and wants to raise up future leaders in the church. And more, Lord, I pray that you would keep us away from those who are discontent, those who are restless, those who are oppressors, those who fight for their own relevancy and fight for their own once you believe that they can do it alone, that, that it's better for they to strive and do it all by themselves, that you would keep those leaders and those pastors away from the deeper church. Lord, help us, help the members of Redeemer Fellowship Church. Give them wisdom. Give them biblical understanding on who you desire to be pastors of your church. It's Christ's church, not our church, Lord. It's Christ's church. He is head of the body. Lord, may you raise up shepherds and servants here who are faithful to your word always, who are humble, who are content in God's grace, and are a fellow worker in Christ. We love you, we praise you.